I've got the privilege of being able to share with you again this morning, and um, I thought I'd start by uh, reading, uh, reading a story uh, that I read, and I thought it was quite a good story, so I'll read it. And um, uh, It's slightly tongue-in-cheek, but I'll read it. Okay, it says, there was a group called the Fisherman's Fellowship. They were surrounded by streams and lakes full of hungry fish. They met regularly to discuss the call to fish and the thrill of catching fish. They got excited about fishing. Someone suggested they needed a philosophy of fishing. Uh, So they carefully defined and redefined fishing and the purpose of fishing. They developed fishing strategies and tactics. And then they realized they had been going about it all backwards. They had approached fishing from the point of view of the fisherman uh, and not from the point of view of the fish. How do the fish view the world? How how does the fisherman appear to the fish? What do fish eat and when? These are all good things to know. So they began to research them. uh, And they attended conferences on fishing. Some travelled to faraway places to study different kinds of fish with different habits. Some got PhDs in fishology. But no one had yet gone fishing. So a committee was formed to send out fishermen. As prospective fishing places outnumbered fishermen, the committee needed to determine priorities. A priority list of fishing places was posted on bulletin boards in all the fellowship halls, but still no one was fishing. A survey was launched to find out why. Most did not answer the survey, but those uh, that did, it was discovered that some felt called to study fish, a few felt to furnish uh, fishing equipment, and several to go around encouraging the fishermen. Uh, What with meetings, conferences and seminars, they simply did not have time to fish. Now, Jake was a newcomer to the Fisherman's Fellowship. After one stirring meeting of the fellowship, Jake went fishing. He tried a few things and got the hang of it and caught a choice fish. At the next meeting, he told his story and he was honoured for his catch and was scheduled to speak all the fellowship chapters and tell how he did it. Now, because of all the speaking invitations and his election to the board of directors of the Fisherman's Fellowship, Jake no longer had time to go fishing. But soon he began to feel restless and empty. He longed to fill the tug of the line once again. So he cut the speaking, resigned from the board and said to a friend, let's go fishing. They did, just the two of them, and they caught fish. The members of the Fisherman's Fellowship were many. The fish were plentiful, but the fishers were few. And that is a story, really, that's designed... It's a a silly story, really. But it's a challenge to us as a church. And it's something that uh, I'm going to link this to Simeon at the end. um, But it's something that I feel God has been speaking to me um, about really, potentially, uh, what our future might hold for us as a church in the coming months. Um, And before I go on, you know, sometimes when you speak, it's good to just put, like, a little caveat in there, you know? Um, I just want to be really clear that that what I'm going to say this morning is in no way a criticism of our church, right? It's in no way a criticism of what we don't do, right? I know many people are engaged in some of the things I'm going to talk about this morning. Um, But I suppose God, I believe, wants to challenge us to go further. You know, do you believe that, that God wants to challenge us to go further in these things? And I think I really found it challenging to me personally. So if, if you will permit, I don't know if this is allowed, but as I'm the leader, it's allowed. Um, uh, in a way, I'm preaching to myself because God has been speaking this to me. And it's something that I haven't necessarily worked out completely, but something that I feel that I need to work out and that God's been speaking to me. And 
I suppose it's, it's, um, it's something that God's been speaking about over several weeks and maybe even months. Uh, and a couple of weeks ago, a few of us went up to London to hear a friend of ours, a guy, most of you know Tano. Um, Tano had a friend um, who was a church planter from, uh, uh, where was he, was it Brazil? Um, and had seen lots of churches planted and he was talking about lots of different things. And one of the things that he said um, in a message afterwards was that often people talk a lot about the kind of church that they want to build, the kind of place that they want to uh, create. But he said, and I thought this was great, is that we should talk more about the kind of people that we want to reach, the kind of people that really matter to us, not just about the kind of organisation that we want to build. And then as I was walking this week, it's been, I, I, I know that some of you hate the heat, right? right? Some of you, I, I was talking to lots of you this morning, some of you both can't sleep with the fan on because it's, it's, too, it's too hot without the fan on, but it's too noisy with the fan on and you just hate the heat and you're not sleeping. Can I just say, I love the heat, right? Okay, this is, amen, oh I just love it, right? Okay, I could live in this all the time. Um, it's beautiful. But uh, one of the things that's nice to do, um, as Andy does quite regularly, Andy's a walker, aren't you, Andy? Yeah? And it's lovely to go out walking kind of late-ish in the evening, right, when there's sort of, the, sort of, it's cooler in the evening, to go out for a nice long walk. And I went for a walk, and I was walking up this road, okay, and you walk up St Paulswood Hill, and I must be honest, I do get what's called house envy, right? Have you ever had house envy? Right, you walk past the houses on St Paulswood Hill, and you just think, oh, these houses are amazing, right? Then what you do is you turn left, right? Right, onto what that, what's that road that goes along towards Pets Wood? Um, and basically, it is, they're all the gated houses, right? And then you get really envious when you walk down there, right? And Kelly's, yeah, it's just huge. I mean, the, the number of bedrooms. And then I turned left and went down Marlins Park Avenue, and again, I'm walking down, and I'm thinking to myself, and I was saying to the Lord, I'm not going to lie, I was saying, Lord, Lord, if you could provide me with a house like this one day, I would just be a very happy man, right? And the thought of this nice big house. But do you know what happens uh, when you walk down Marlins Park? Well, it's actually, for those of us that know the area, Kevington Drive. Do you know what happens when you get to the bottom of Kevington Drive? It just switches almost immediately from these very fancy big houses to a council estate. To a council estate. And you go from three cars, four cars on the, on the drive, which are BMWs, Porsches and uh, Mercedes, to basically broken down cars, right, okay, and things like that. And, and you realise, and, and do you know what I felt God was speaking to me about? Was, was this, that if I'm honest, I, I am drawn more naturally to people at, in, in the nice part of town than I am drawn to the people who are maybe not from such the nice part of town, right? And that's not because I think they're any more valuable as people or anything like that, but I think, there's, as I'm going to talk about this morning, there's a whole range of reasons for that. <clears throat> but if I'm honest, and, I, and I, I said I'm speaking to me personally, you can take it, whether maybe this doesn't affect you, but it, it has affected me in the past. I think the truth is sometimes we want to save the sanctified and the sanitary. We want to preach the powerful and the pretty. We want to welcome the wealthy and the well-to-do. We want to minister to the middle class. We want to invite the interested and gather the gifted. And, and I suppose what I really felt God was saying to me was that when we look, and we're going to look this morning in quite some detail at Jesus, when we look at where Jesus spent his time, Pat's grinning at me, right, okay, right, but when we look at Jesus, at his ministry, his life, he spent most of his time with the not well-to-do, with the people whose lives were broken, 
the people who were poor, the people who were lost, the people who were sinners, the prostitutes, uh, the tax collectors, the alcoholics, the drunkards, the drug addicts. Those were the kind of people that, pe- that Jesus spent time with. And my question to us this morning, and this was the challenge that I felt on my heart, am I willing to mix with the messy? Am I willing to really mix with the messy? Now, I'm not talking about just kind of being nice to people that are not like us. I'm not just talking about, you know, kind of being welcoming. I'm talking about really getting involved, about really opening our hearts and opening our lives to people that are not like us, to people who have messy lives, broken lives, people that could hurt us or affect us or damage us in some way. Jesus went to those kind of people. And so I want us to start this morning by looking, if we can, at Luke chapter 4. Uh, and it's verse 16 to 21. And this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Up until this point, he has done nothing. He has done nothing. He, he was born, he grew up, uh, he got baptised, he went out into the desert to kind of uh, to take on uh, the devil in the desert, and then he comes back and he's about to begin his ministry. And this is what he does. His first big act, he says this, in verse 16, chapter 4, it says, And he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, and as was, his, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim, the fa- to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of everybody were fixed on him. You can imagine silence has fallen. They look at Jesus. He's just read this scripture. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The first thing that Jesus does when he announces himself on the world stage is he says, I'm not here for the wealthy. I'm not here for those that have got it all together. I'm not here for those that are clever or super educated, all of those things. He says, I am here for the poor. I'm here for the captives. I'm here for the blind and I'm here for the oppressed. He was here to mix with the messy. Jesus was here to mix with the messy. And I suppose I, I, I started to think about this, and, I, I, and Pat and I have talked about this a little bit, because you know, we often say these things, oh yes, the church needs to support the poor, things like this. It's, you know, and, and it's important, but one of the challenges that we live in is we live in a country which has a fantastic welfare state. Right? We had 70 years this week of the NHS, and it is, can I just say, it is an amazing institution, NHS. I know everyone criticises it, right? But believe me, when your child is sick, right, okay, the fact that you can go there without worrying about how much you pay and all this kind of stuff, and the fact that people are there to care for you, when, you know, I've been in that situation. If you've been in that situation, you know what I mean, right? Okay, but we are very fortunate we have a fantastic NHS. We have a benefit system, which means that the poorest in our society are financially supported. Uh, we have a good education system, which means that really, often, you know, everyone's getting at least a decent education. They've got an opportunity to work. We live in that system. And so therefore, when we are in our UK society today, it is harder, if I'm honest, to see the poor, the prisoners, the blind and the oppressed than it would be if you went to India, 
Our guys went out to India last year, and I'd imagine you get off the train, right, or you get off the plane, and you walk out into the city, and what you see is poverty everywhere. Is that right? Yeah? Those of us have ever, ever travelled. It's harder. So let me ask you the question this morning. Who are the poor? So if we say, well, if this scripture about Jesus, if Jesus says, I have come to bring good news to the poor, I've come to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, liberty to those who are oppressed. If I've come to do all of those things, right, and you and I have Jesus living within us, then that too is our mission. That too has to be our mandate. And what you see that Jesus spent his ministry living out those principles. And so the question is, how do we, who are the poor that we need to reach in our society? Now, there are, I think, two types of poor. You've got the economically poor, right? Now, there may not be as many people starving on our streets as there were 100 years ago, right? We are, this isn't the wealthiest of areas, but I don't think there's, there's hardly any homeless people that live in our area. Okay, I mean, I've not seen many. Um, but my neighbour lives in a three-bedroom house. It's an end of terrace. It's not very big. They have a teenage daughter that lives with them. But now they also have their older daughter and her son living with them because they're, they're, their older daughter and their son cannot afford to buy or rent another property. Yeah, they just don't have the money, right? So they're having to live in a small uh, flat or, or a small house, all of these people together. And in fact, their son was there at, that, at one point, right? And, you know, it, it's tough. And there are people, I'm sure, if you look to your neighbour, there are situations like that. We've got friends in Eltham, right? And, and, uh, and they're a lovely couple and they're trying to build a life for themselves. He's a lifeguard and a fitness instructor. But he suffers from the curse of the zero hours contract. Anyone been on a zero-hours contract? Yeah? The government tells us that we have the lowest rates of unemployment uh, virtually in history, which is wonderful. But that's because many people are on what these zero-hours contracts. And what it basically means is, is that they don't really have to pay you anything, but technically you're employed. And the trouble is, is that when we start looking, we realise that there are people that are really struggling. And as Karina talked about the food bank, there are still many people in our community that are really poor, that are really struggling. And it may not be out on the streets like it would be in India, but if we look, we'll see it. But I think that that's not actually, in many ways, what our society really suffers from in terms of poverty. I think that, so, that's, so you've got economic poverty, but really the real issue in our society, I would say, is relational poverty relational poverty. You know, there's a, a statistic that says, right, that the wealthier a country, in fact, this has been done across, uh, there's a really interesting book uh, that I read, um, uh, and I, it's called the, the Waters, The Spirit Level, right? Uh, it's, all, it's a sociological study about, and it looks at all different cultures all across the world. And what it basically shows, there's all these graphs in this book, and basically what it shows is the wealthier a country becomes, the worse the mental health of a country becomes. And it's been proven, not just in our society, across the world, every society, the same pattern exists. And that's because, I don't know why, I'm sure that there's you know, lots of explanations for it, but what we find in our society is that we are living in ages where people are increasingly relationally poor, right? Where families are broken, where people's lives have been shredded by abuse or by just brokenness. And they're just constantly battling. I, I, I've been a teacher for many years, and one of the heart, most heartbreaking things is when you realise that people's lives, these children's lives, have been shredded by broken relationship after broken relationship. And they are not relationally wealthy, they are relationally poor. You know, I, I've, um, 
I came across an author this week, um, or last week, uh, and started to read some of his stuff and listen to some of he's talking about, and it's a guy called Warren Farrell, and if you're interested in this stuff, you should look it up. It's a guy called Warren Farrell. He's written a book called The Boy Crisis, all right, okay, and he wrote it with the guy that, uh, he's wrote it with a guy called John Gray, who wrote Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. And it was a very, it's a very academic book. It's written, it's, done, it's based heavily in research, and it's a book called The Boy Crisis. And what this book says is that it identifies 70 different ways how boys are essentially worse off uh, in life in terms of success, emotional health, wealth, etc., without uh, a stable quality father figure in their life. And it's just been proven, 70 different reasons why it's different, and they've proven it from research, so it's not just you know, someone making stuff up. And what we hear, when, when we go out into our society, when we walk around our communities, when we look at our next door neighbours, we realise that our friends who live next door to us may well be very relationally poor. And Jesus is saying, I've come for those kind of people. I've not just come for the nice, ordered people, I've come for the people whose lives are a mess. Their lives have been shredded by relationship after relationship after relationship. So that's the first thing. So he comes, so those are the poor. So the second it says, I come to he comes to bring freedom from the prisoners. Freedom to the prisoners. Freedom to the prisoners. Now Jesus was not planning to orchestrate a jailbreak. Yeah? He wasn't talking about going down to local Roman prison and busting people out of jail. That was not what he was talking about. What Jesus was talking about is that those that are basically in chains, not necessarily physically, but emotionally. Those people that are chained up by things like alcoholism, by drug addiction, by mental health issues, by domestic abuse, people that are prisoners inside their own home, by the demonically troubled, by people that are physically crippled by pain or by health issues. These are the people that Jesus came to reach. These are the people that Jesus said in his opening statement, in his declaration of why he had come, he said those are the people that we need to reach. Now the reality is, is that those lives are messy. They're messy. They're complicated. They're not simple. There's no quick fix often for these things. But Jesus called us to engage with them. The third thing he said is that he said he came to bring sight to the blind. You know, Jesus is not just talking, he's talking about physical blindness, about physical, but, but also about spiritual blindness. Jesus has come, it says, to heal those people who are blind, who can't see, whose lives are just completely confused and messed up and sinners completely warped their lives. They're so blinded to God. He's come to bring light so that people can see who he really is. You know, one of the things that you realise is that we live in a... When you're dealing with people, and you see this at school when you're a teacher, is that um, generation after generation breeds the next generation. Right? I don't really believe in generational curses, but you know, the truth is if you've grown up in a home where your dad was in prison and your granddad was in prison and your dad dealt drugs and your granddad dealt drugs, then what are you going to do? There's a high chance that that's what you're going to do. Right, I'm really fortunate. I come from a family which had generational righteousness. So my parents, as you all well know, uh, were good, moral, upstanding Christian people who love God. But so was their parents. And in fact, I think their parents before them were. 
So I'm living maybe four, potentially five generations of godliness and righteousness, and that's flowing into me and into my children. But what's happening is that we are often facing people who have had generation after generation after generation of brokenness and mess and destruction and just utter sin ravaging their lives, and then we come up with them and then we wonder why it's so difficult for them to receive the gospel. And we are called to break that cycle. We're called to break that link then do we believe that God has the power to do that? Because that's the kind of thing that I want to see in this church. And you know, how does it happen? It happens because people like us engage with the mess. You know, in, uh, in uh, AD 251, I read this, by the way, I didn't know this, I just read this. Uh, in AD 251, right, there was a great plague that struck the, Greek, the Greco-Roman world. Uh, and, and basically, n- n- more than a third of the population died. It was a bit, imagine the, the Black Death uh, in, in, uh, in London uh, at that time. And basically fear was everywhere. And so those that could afford it, what did the rich people do? They ran away. They went out to the countryside. And those that couldn't had to remain in the cities. And when these people who worshipped Roman gods and Greek gods, when they went to the temples, the priests had gone. The priests had fled. And the streets were filled up with those that were infected and the families had no option but to push these people out of the door onto the streets. But the Christians, the Christians took an entirely different approach. They saw it as their responsibility to love the sick and the dying. So they took, the Christians at this time, they took the sick and the dying into their homes and they nursed them. And this action meant that many people recovered that would have otherwise died. And do you know what? They, they, they attribute that, that moment in history as being one of the critical moments for the church because it was the point when basically the, the Roman and Greek world suddenly clocked on that, that this, this, there was something about this Christianity that was really, really different. And it was really what opened the door to, to God being able to use that kind of world to really spread the gospel even further. It was the love of Christians who were willing to mix with the messy that really made the difference. And you know, I know that we would love to have a nice church that's very ordered where no one smokes outside the front and the smoke drifts in through the window so that you're sat here and you can smell cigarette smoke. But that's not the kind of church that Jesus would have been interested in. Jesus loved the messy. Do you believe that this morning? Because we need to get hold of that. You know, in in Luke chapter 5, verses 27 to 32, so following on, so he's preached Jesus and he starts his ministry and very quickly, so we've had chapter 4, he said, here I am, chapter 5, what do we find him doing? It says in verse 27, it says, and he went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, Levi rose and followed him. And what did Levi do? did what all good Christians do. Uh, Levi made him a great feast. He put on a great feast in his house and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled, the religious people grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And this is such a key verse. Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but to call the sinners to repentance. Jesus was quite happy being called the friend of sinners. Jesus was quite happy to mix with the messy. And if we ask ourselves an honest question, and I ask myself this, and God has been challenging me, how is my life mixing with the mess? Mixing with mess and just being like Jesus. 
Well, I want to just identify a couple of... I've got five ways that Jesus lived that contrast often the reasons why we don't get involved when maybe we should. And I'm going to take those from a very famous story in the Bible, uh, which is John chapter 4, verses 7 to 27. And it's the story of the woman at the well. Okay? Um, it was the woman of Samaria. Okay? Now, it's quite long, so I'm not going to read you the whole story, but I'm just going to paraphrase it for you. So what happens is that, again, John chapter 4, so it's right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, um, so they go off and they're travelling across, they're walking because there, no, there was no Ubers, there was no uh, bus service, so they were walking uh, and they arrive in Samaria. Uh, and now Samaria was a place that the Jews hated. You imagine Northern Ireland uh, at the height of its trouble where you had the Catholics and the Protestants and you couldn't go into certain areas because it was a Catholic area or Protestant area. That was the difference between the Israelites and the Samarians, right? You didn't do it. But they found themselves in Samaria. Okay, so first of all, you wouldn't want to be mixing. Good Jews wouldn't be mixing with Sumerians. And then he gets into a conversation with a woman, which, uh, and he asks her for a drink, and because his disciples have gone into the town to buy some food. Uh, and, it, you know, for a start, you know, a teacher, a Jewish teacher, should never be talking to a woman. Right? That was just the way it was in those days. You shouldn't be doing that. Um, and it turns out that this woman had five husbands. Five husbands. That's quite some going, let's be honest, right? Even by modern standards, that's pretty good going. And she was now living with a sixth man who was not her husband. She was getting water in the middle of the day. She was getting water in the middle of the day because basically she couldn't go like, would you go walking probably like, I don't know, a mile or how far it was out to this well or you know, half a mile walking with a big heavy uh, you know, bucket of water on either shoulder or on your head or whatever, they, however they used to carry it in the middle of the day. You wouldn't. You'd do it in the evening. And that's, of course, when the women used to go and get the water was in the evening. But the fact that she went in the middle of the day was the f because she was an outcast. Other people didn't want to be her friend. Other people didn't want to mix with her. And so Jesus comes and finds himself face to face with a town outcast who respectable people wouldn't be involved with. But Jesus reveals to her that he is the Messiah, that he is the one that's come to change everything. And in this story, and you can go and read it if you want, Right, but in this story, we see five things that Jesus does that often we are not prepared to do when it comes to engaging with the messy. So first of all, Jesus didn't mind getting his hands dirty. That's the first thing we see about Jesus in this story. I've just told you all the context of this woman. Jesus wasn't bothered. He didn't care. He didn't care who she was or what she'd done or where she'd come from. He didn't care what time of the day it was, what was appropriate, not appropriate. What he cared about was that, she, was that he, wasn't, he didn't mind getting his hands dirty. You know, he saw past all the mess, all the brokenness of the person underneath and he reached out and he touched her. Do you know, I want you to go and read through Luke and look at how many times Jesus, it says of Jesus that he touched people. Right? Jesus physically touched people, right? Touched people with leprosy, the most kind of, of, you know, it was the kind of HIV of that day, you know, or the kind of the real kind of horrible disease of that day. But Jesus went and he touched and he hugged and he embraced people. You see, Jesus was not afraid to get his hands dirty. He wasn't afraid to mix with the messy. You know, recently, um, uh, I went to, to visit someone, right, and their, you know, their, their life was in a bit of a mess. 
And I'll be honest, we went to her house uh, and we walked in and I have never been into a house that was quite as messy as that, right? It was just, there was stuff everywhere, there was food on the floor, there was packets everywhere, it was dirty, it was smelly. It wasn't necessarily a kind of place that you would want to go visit. But in that place, with that person, was where Jesus would have been. And I want to ask you the question, when was the last time you were in places where you were made to feel uncomfortable? Where you were willing to go to places where you thought, this place does not make me feel comfortable, but I know that I'm here because Jesus wants me here. And that's a challenge for me. That's the first thing we see. Jesus wasn't afraid to get his hands dirty. The second thing, Jesus was not afraid, was not too busy, too tired or too important, all right, to reach out to those who were in need. He was not too busy. You know, you've got to imagine, Jesus just walked probably, I don't know, 10, 20 miles, something like that. He's just walked. uh, And he had places to be. He had people to minister. He had to preach. But he wasn't too busy to listen to this woman, to sit and talk to her. You know, uh, this week we had a friend come over and she uh, is a lovely lady um, and she's got two kids um, and, you know, she is in a... uh, She's had a uh, husband didn't treat her particularly well. Um, and she came to our house, and I'll be honest, it was an evening where it was my only night off in the week. Right? It was my only evening off in the week. And, uh, you know, I get home at 7 o'clock, having been out of work, and it had been a long day, it was hot. And, I, you know, when you walk in, you just think, what? Oh, no. <laughs> this is not what I was hoping for, right? What I was really hoping for was that the kids would all be in bed, right? <laughs> And, I, and Helen would have the meal nicely laid out for me uh, with a nice refreshing drink, yeah. And instead I come into kids that are hyper and chaos. And she stayed, and she stayed really late. And the truth was we didn't, you know, we'd, by the time we got the kids down and everything, it was actually nearly 10 o'clock. And that was it. Our evening had just gone. But you know what God said to me? This is what it's about. This is what it's about. It's about reaching people and making is your schedule so busy that you're like, oh, I can't, I can't fit people in, I haven't got time? Because I realise that I'm so often rushing around doing things that are important. I don't take time for people, for people that Jesus would... You know, Jesus never seemed to have, never seemed to have a problem stopping, did he? He never seemed to have a problem. Someone would come to him and they'd stop him on the wayside and he wouldn't be like, I'll come back. He just stopped. Everybody pressuring him, pushing him. There was even a point where someone was dying and they're like, they're dying, come quickly. And he's still like just sauntering along, you know, and just like, yeah, I'll get there when I get there. Because he had time for people. And do we have time for people? Jesus did. That's the first thing we see. The third, sorry, the second thing we see is that Jesus was not too busy, too important or too tired for people. The third thing that we see in this story is that Jesus knew what to say or do. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you start to interact with people that are not like you. Right? I'll be honest, I often find myself, and I've often got something to say about anything, right, and everything, but I often find myself lacking, not knowing what to say, not knowing the right words, not knowing how to interact with someone. When you find yourself engaging with someone, I, I, you know, who I, I remember listening to someone talking and they were talking about their experiences, and it was so far removed from my experiences that I just almost could not relate. 
And in a way, that makes us afraid. And Jesus was not afraid to go to people. He knew what to say. And I believe that if we go into that situation, that God will give us the right things to say. Have you ever been sat in a conversation when someone starts to open up their heart and they're pouring out all the things that are going wrong with their life and you're thinking, man, this is too big for me to deal with. Karina sent me something this week. Um, and uh, it, was, it was from Facebook, wasn't it? And basically it was a quote from a chap called Henry Newham, who was a very famous uh, theologian and a really nice, basically a genuinely good guy. Um, and he said, and I think this is really powerful, that often the most powerful thing you can do for someone who's really struggling is just be with them. It's just be there for them. And you may sit there and all you may do is listen to someone talk. But that may be the thing that Jesus wants us to do. Don't feel like sometimes, I know we sometimes don't get involved with people because we think, I could never help that person. I could never know what to say. That's well beyond me. Their problems are so huge. What could I do? You're Jesus in that situation. You know, recently Helen uh, has got a friend who is struggling with uh, cancer. And Helen, uh, she went up and, you know, I'll be honest, again, we were busy. We were under pressure. We needed to get something sorted but Helen took a day out of her schedule to go up to London and sit with this lady for the day while she went through her cancer treatment because her mum wasn't available. Her mum was flying in from somewhere. There was other things that we could have been doing, Helen could have been doing on the day. But just taking the time to be there for people, not worrying about what you've got to say or what you haven't got to say is more important. So we see that. We see Jesus knew what to say and do. The fourth thing is this. Jesus didn't prejudge. Anyone else ever prejudged? Can I just be honest? I do that all the time. I do prejudge. It's just, it's part of the human condition, right? The way that we're built is we have to categorise things into boxes. So you meet someone and you put them in a box, right? And often we prejudge people. Here was a woman and you could have said, she's here in the middle of the day, she's a woman. She's clearly got an absolute messed up life, right? She's probably been abused. She's probably uh, been mistreated by most of those men. Um, but Jesus didn't make any prejudgments or assessments. You know, often I can look at someone and think, man alive, you are so far away from what it looks like to be a Christian that it must be virtually impossible for you to become one. Anyone ever had that thought? No, just me then, okay, right, just me. You look at someone, you think to yourself, they are, their life is, they're a nice person, but their life is so far away from what it looks like to be like Jesus, almost there's no point. Don't prejudge. Jesus didn't prejudge. Jesus didn't look at the surface. If you'd looked at this woman on the surface, you'd have said she is about the least likely candidate for receiving the gospel that there is. But Jesus saw it differently. And you and I are called to see things differently. Don't just judge people before you see them. Get to know people. Mix with the messy and you will find that God will open up things that you and I did not expect. So Jesus didn't. Uh, Jesus didn't prejudge. And lastly, and I think this is a real challenge to us, Jesus was more concerned with other people than he was with himself. Let me say that again. Jesus was more concerned with other people than he was with himself. You know, I often find that my life is dominated by me, by what I need, by what I have, by what I should have, what I ought to have, what I should be doing at this point or that point or whatever, but you know what? God is challenging me and working in me and bringing me to that place where I am saying, Tim, you are not the most important person in your life. And often when we come to people, we're just looking, oh no, what about this, what about that? Let's look at other people. Let, us, let, let Jesus come through us.
So how do we do that? What's the application then this morning for uh, mixing with the messy? Well, do we suddenly start running out and trying to you know, fix everyone's problems? Do we suddenly start some big project? No. No, we don't. I want you to do this. I want you to ask yourself, if you are a Christian here this morning, I want you to go away. This is the response that I want you to take away from this morning, to go and ask yourself this question. Am I really willing to get my hands dirty for Jesus? Am I really willing to be like Jesus? Or are there things that I sort of think, well, I won't do that. I don't want to talk to that person. I couldn't do that. Because I think that's where it starts. You know, the starting point of effective outreach is not another program, not a new system, not a fancy presentation. It's a heart deeply in love with Jesus. That's what it is. And so when you've asked that question, I think there are then just three simple things that you can do. Three really simple things. First of all, pray for your neighbours. If you live in this estate, right, if you live in this estate, the poor, the prisoners, the blind, the oppressed probably live next door. If not next door, the door down. Right? We live in a little close. Right? We, we used to live in Eltham, uh, in one of the roughest parts of Eltham, right, on one of the main roads. And I'll be honest, right, we didn't see that, you know, that many things happen, you know, one or two kind of you know, antisocial behaviour. Right? We live in a, in a close round the corner. We've been living there for 18 months and we have seen far more of the police than we have seen in all the years we were living in Eltham. Honestly. The police up on a regular basis, right? There was one night, Helen's aunt and uncle were here, right? And uh, they were staying with us. And I got woken at two o'clock in the morning and there's a car on fire. There's a car on fire because a couple, few doors down, uh, the, the couple had had an argument. He'd left and he was obviously angry with her, all right? And so he'd come back and set the car on fire. He's now living back with them. This is it. That's mess. But the question is, am I willing to... So God has been in challenging me. Just, Tim, pray for your neighbours. So I've started to pray for my neighbours. And yesterday I was out and I had a conversation uh, with a, uh, one of the guys that lives opposite me. I've been living there for 18 months and he's never once even acknowledged me. But I made an effort and I stopped and I actively engaged him in conversation and suddenly he just chatty, chatty, chatty. Pray for your neighbours. There are people that live. You don't have to go a long way away. This isn't about doing more. This isn't about going and finding people, wandering the, the, the streets at night like a detective looking for a homeless person to bless them. Right? This is just looking at your neighbours because they are people that maybe they may have lots of money living next door to you. Thinking about Esther and Andy. Nice where you live, isn't it? Up there, you know. But there are people that are relationally broken and poor around you. That's the first thing. The second thing is this, right? Pray for your neighbours, open your home. All you need to do is open your home. You know, we've been doing these, these, uh, these midweek groups, haven't we? And, and, it, and we've been eating together and we've been just coming around to people's houses and just socialising, basically, and then doing a bit of like spiritual stuff at the end. I think everyone that's been would say, it's been fantastic. It has, hasn't it? And it's that sense of just opening your home, having a bit of food, just inviting people in for a cup of coffee, it sometimes breaks that barrier down. Going into people's homes, it's very easy to have a conversation with someone, you know, outside somewhere in a neutral place. But the moment you bring them into your home, or they bring you into their home, they're bringing you into their heart. They're bringing you into their life. It's the truth. John Watson, where I used to go, always talks about open home. An open home is an open heart. And I really believe that's true. And so that's the second thing you can do, open your home. And the third thing is this. 
What did, what did Jesus say? The first thing he says, I have come to bring good news to the poor. Good news to the poor. And, you know, the best thing we can do is to share the gospel. That Jesus loves you. That Jesus can bring freedom from your, your poverty, whatever it might be. That Jesus can bless you. That Jesus can do good. Do we share that news? And so, as we finish this morning, do you know what? We'll come back. We, we dedicated Simeon this morning. Do you want to know what my prayer for Simeon is? My prayer for Simeon is that this will be his life. That this will be his mission. That he will be a man, that he will be a messy mixer. Because if we produce children that do that, we'll see the kingdom of God going forward. People that make a difference. That's my prayer for him. You know, that he won't live his life in pursuit of his own pleasure, his own glory, his own success, his happy family, his happy house. What he'll live for is to engage like Jesus did with the messy, with the broken, with the lost. And so this morning, even though it may feel like a huge challenge for us, I want us to believe that God is leading us as a church, as individuals, to engage with people who may not be like us, who may be different to us, but who we have the good news of Jesus Christ to bring. You know, I pray that we would be a church that saves the smelly and the struggling, that preached to the poor and to the powerless, that welcomed the weird and the wacky and ministered to the messy. Let's pray, shall we?